there's a very interesting podcast which I often recommend to people. Um, I think it's on Freakonomics and it's called In Praise of Maintenance and it actually talks about how, uh, how much we value innovation when really what holds us together is people who do maintenance. So, um, and it gives us an example what happened to New York when the garbage workers went on strike. Mm. Within days, there was, people couldn't walk down the street or drive down the street because of all piles of rubbish there, but that yeah. work is never valued. And now, you know, with the latest <coughs> industrial relations bill, they're gonna punish those very frontline workers that pulled us through. You know, they're gonna punish the most vulnerable and the most needed part of our community. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a bit of resistance building up yeah. to that. So, um, I referred to a couple of, um, when I was researching it, a couple of um, newspaper articles, and I started to write something, but I decided that they actually said it better than I can. But I will refer briefly to an article in the Sydney Morning Herald. I'll just quote one paragraph out of that. It's written by Stephen Cliborne and Chris Wright, Chris F. Wright, and they research and teach IR regulation and policy at the University of Sydney Business School and they're co-directors of the Sydney Employment Relations uh, Research Group. So one thing they point out, so in 2019 when the current Attorney General Christian Porter started public consultation, the big industrial relations challenges facing the country included stagnant wage growth, growing inequality, persistent job insecurity, widespread wage theft, particularly for temporary migrants, a large gender pay gap, and the gig economy's avoidance of the industrial relations system. So that's what we started with before the pandemic. I'll go now to an article that's in the conversation. So this is fairly long, so bear with me. It takes a few minutes, but it does cover all the points. This is written by Jim Stanford, from the um, Centre for Future Work, um, and it was published in the conversation on the 9th of December, so a couple of days ago. We're all in this together, Prime Minister Scott Morrison solemnly intoned in April, and for a brief few months, in the face of the economic crisis wrought by COVID-19, Australia's industrial relations protagonists agreed business groups, unions and governments put aside their usual differences and worked together to minimise job losses. They quickly negotiated alterations to dozens of awards and enterprise agreements, adjusting rules and rosters to help keep Australians on the job. Then in late May, seeing opportunity in that spirit of cooperation, Morrison heralded a new consensus-based approach to industrial relations. The federal government set aside its effort to impose more legal restrictions on unions and established new industrial relations reform roundtables for employer groups, unions and government officials to work together on reforming workplace laws, Morrison said, were not fit for purpose. We've got to put down our weapons, he declared. The change in approach was even compared to the historic accords of the 1980s in which the Hawke-Keating Labor government convinced unions to accept wage freezes in return for enhanced social benefits like Medicare and superannuation. Well, the kumbaya moment didn't last long. Within weeks, the parties retreated to their corners and their standard speaking points. No meaningful consensus emerged on any issue from any table. 
even tentative proposals like an idea supported by unions and the Business Council of Australia to combine fast-track approval of union-negotiated enterprise agreements with greater flexibility in determining their suitability was shot down in partisan gunfire by more strident business lobbyists. Now, in the absence of consensus, the government has picked up its traditional hymn book and once again is singing the praises of flexibility. Today, Federal Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter revealed the rotten fruit of the round table process, the Fair Work Amendments supporting Australia's Jobs and Economic Recovery Bill 2020. If passed, it will further skew the already lopsided balance of power towards employers. The bill doesn't just take the employer's side of the five issues debated in those round tables, which were award simplification, enterprise agreements, casual work, compliance and enforcement, and Greenfields agreements for new enterprises. One of its biggest changes is to suspend the rules that prevent enterprise agreements from undercutting minimum award standards. This proposal wasn't even discussed at the round tables. This confirms the gloves are off once again in Australia's interminable IR wars. So here are the most significant ways the bill weight the scales further to the disadvantage of workers. Suspending the boot. So as the law stands now, enterprise agreements cannot undercut minimum standards in industry awards. This is known as the better off overall test or boot. The new bill instructs the Fair Work Commission to approve agreements, even if they fail this test, so long as the deal is nominally supported by affected workers and deemed to be in the public interest. Australia is unique among wealthy nations in allowing employers to unilaterally implement enterprise agreements within, without involvement by a union. The boot is thus necessary to prevent enterprise agreements from undermining award rights. So I'm gonna divert for a second here for people who may not know the difference between an award and an enterprise agreement. Yeah, I was sitting there going, oh, yeah. I'm sure I'd be kicking myself if Dad and Mum were here. <laughs> Help me the stuff. <laughs> so an award is the, the basic, each industry has an award, which you can find on the Fair Work website, and that's the minimum that people working in that industry should, um, the minimum paying conditions. Mm. It's not the minimum pay, that's a different thing again. Um, so if you look up the, I don't know, the award for butchers, it'll tell you, you know, your penalty rates, how your leave payments work, uh, what hours, how rostering works, all that sort of thing. All of that's in the award, that's the minimum standard. An enterprise agreement is within an organisation. So it's actually an employer negotiating with the workers in that enterprise what the conditions will be within that organisation. Um, so at the moment, what's in an enterprise agreement cannot be, cannot be worse than what's in the award. Mm. The award is the minimum, the, the floor, if you like. Mm. When employers and workers negotiate an enterprise agreement, fair work sign off on it, and one of the things they look at is that better off overall test. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing, it's not um, you know, give up this and get that, it looks at the overall thing. 
but um, it does mean that stand, a certain standard is maintained. So one of the things in the new IR laws is that they want to suspend that rule about the boot for two years, but even if it were restored after that, which is uncertain, agreements approved during that window would remain in effect. So enterprise agreements typically last for four years. Even after they expire, under Australian law, they remain in effect until replaced by a new agreement or terminated by the Fair Work Commission, neither of which is likely in a non-unionised workplace. So most agreements last four years. If you're on, on, on an agreement under the, which hasn't even met the boot test, you're probably going to be that on, on that for four years and maybe even longer if it takes a while to negotiate a new agreement. And employers do use tactics to delay uh, negotiating a new agreement as well so that you're still stuck under the, the old one. Um, so apparently in anticipation that unions will actively oppose non-boot compliant agreements, the bill also includes measures to speed their approval by the Fair Work Commission. The process must be completed within 21 days with some exceptions. This will limit the ability of affected workers to learn about and resist their loss of benefits and conditions and unions will be restricted from intervening around agreements they were not directly involved in negotiating, including intervening against agreements they had that had no union involvement before. The next thing that they're talking about doing is broadening the definition of casual work. So the growing use of casual employment provisions was a hot topic at the IR, at the IR reform tables. The new bill clarifies the definition of casual work in the most expansive way possible. A casual job is any position deemed casual by the employer and accepted by the worker, for which there is no promise of regular continuing employment. In other words, any job can be casual, so long as workers are desperate enough to accept it. This will foster uh, the further spread of insecure employment without paid leave entitlements. Most importantly, it removes a big potential liability faced by employers as a result of a re recent court decisions under which they might have uh, owed back pay for holidays and sick leave to employees improperly treated as casual workers. So casual uh, workers recently won, are supposed to get a higher hourly rate of pay to compensate for the fact they don't get um, annual leave and sick leave. Although um, Sally McManus was asked this question at the press club and apparently there's a lot of labour hire workers who, yes, they're casual and they sh that's the way it should be working, but they're actually getting a, a lower hourly rate than the permanent workers doing the same job that they're working next to because, and because they have a different employer. Mm -hmm. So um, that court case found in favour that not only are they entitled to a higher hourly rate, they're also entitled to leave payments and um, employers aren't very happy about that. So this is partly to get it to, and that's retrospective. They want to make that retrospective as well. Um, there's also further casualisation will be attained through new rules regarding rosters and hours for permanent part-time workers. The bill extends flexibility provisions originally implemented earlier this year during the brief moment in, of pandemic-induced cooperation. The rules allow employers to alter hours for regular part-timers without incurring overtime penalties or other costs currently required 
under some awards. This will allow employers to effectively use part-time workers as yet another form of casual, just-in-time labour. So that's actually cutting people's pay, getting to work longer for no extra money. Um, doubling new project agreement times. So I'll just explain a little bit about Greenfields Agreements. Greenfields Agreements are agreements where an employer, uh, a business might be, I don't know, they might be building a new subdivision in Western Sydney somewhere. They haven't actually employed anybody yet. So they can actually write their own agreement before they've actually employed anybody. Um, so finally, the bill grants one more big wish from the business list. It allows super long enterprise agreements at major new projects. Agreements can last for up to eight years, double the time now allowed, and be signed, sealed and delivered before any workers start on the job, thus denying them any input into the process. Under the revised boot provisions, they could also undercut the minimum standards of any industry awards. So these changes are being advertised as a spur for post-pandemic job creation, but this claim is hollow. In reality, the changes in part-time and casual rules will actually discourage new hiring, since uh, existing workers can be costlessly flexed in line with employer needs. There's no need to hire anybody else. Weaker boot protections will spur a new wave of enterprise agreements, most union-free and aimed at reducing not raising compensation and standards, and this makes a mockery of the goals of collective bargaining and grants employers further opportunity to suppress labour costs, already tracking at their lowest pace in post-war history. So what to make of that short-lived spirit of togetherness that purportedly sparked this whole process? In retrospect, it seems to have been just an opportunity for the coalition government to pose as visionary statesmen during a time of crisis. Now, mere months later, the government is back to its old ways and the pandemic is just another excuse to scapegoat unions, drive down wages and fatten business profits. Um, before I finish, I might just go back to that first article I quoted from, because one thing they did point out in the um, new legislation, there'll be criminal, ex criminal sanctions against wage theft, but research shows that um, unless you actually enforce it, that doesn't actually have much, um, much impact. Um, so what we've got here, criminal sanctions, sanctions are to be introduced for the most serious cases of wage theft. So in the legislation it says egregious wage theft, which means no penalty or, you know, if you're just careless or um, it really has to be serious. If you, if you don't know you're doing it. If you can claim yeah. you, did, you didn't realise, yes. you know, it was just a, an accounting mistake. And in fact, yeah. there's a... It's only when you know, when, the, you, when someone can prove that you actually knew you were doing and it. And that you were doing it deliberately. And then they've got to take you to court. And, and who's going to have the money to do that? Yes, yeah. um, especially if you're not in a union. Yeah. Um, research tells us this won't increase employer compliance. Missing is increased enforcement in the form of adequately resourcing the Fair Work Ombudsman, enabling unions to take a greater enforcement role and reducing worker vulnerability through migration reform. A 22.3 million boost to the Ombudsman for enforcement activities is heading in the right direction, but given the size of the problem that's developed over the last decade, um, not enough. 